0: Okay, well, if you hadn't picked up already just from the, the reading, um, the section of the Bible, it, in many ways, it is shocking, it is uh, sickening, it is shameful, and it could be you'd be quite happy to skip over these chapters and onto on something a little bit more upbeat. Um, but we, we mustn't do that, not least because chapter 13 is just as shocking, so let's leave that for next week. Um, and, well, look, as we come to this one, we're going to see that these two chapters show to us what even the so-called best of men are capable of. This is David. Great King David, the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's chosen one. Just been given these marvelous promises to him from the Lord last week in 2 Samuel. This is is the man after God's own heart, as he's described in the New Testament, Acts 13. And yet the evil that David commits in this section of the Bible towards Bathsheba, towards Uriah, and let's be absolutely clear, it is evil. Chapter 12, verse nine, that is the word used here to describe David's uh, actions. Evil, shocking, that God's king would, well, the abuse of power, the lust, the deception, the betrayal, the murder, it is shocking that God's king acts like this. And I want to suggest to you that it is very sobering because if this is how David acts, David who wrote many of the Psalms, David who is a man after the Lord's heart, if this is what he is capable of, then what does that say about you and me? And what each of us are capable of. So, you know, if you're still a bit drowsy after lunch this afternoon, let me encourage you guys to wake off, shake it off. My hope and prayer is that none of us miss the key lessons that God has for us Today, What I'm going to do is I'm going to take us through the whole section in one go, a little bit different to normal, I'll make some explanatory comments along the way, one or two applications to us, but hold off the three main applications until the second half, okay, so that's where we're going. So page 314, chapter 11, verse 1, this is where the story, story starts, and right away we see that something is off, we're alerted straight away that something is not right. Because in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged rubber, but David remained in Jerusalem David's the king kings go off to war he's meant to lead his people lead his army into battle not remain in Jerusalem David as the king is meant to defend his people David's meant to crush their oppressors not become an oppressor as he does in verses 2 to 5 one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace from the roof he saw a woman washing the woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her the man said she's Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite in other words she's married David she is completely off limits David don't even think about going there David but David does go there verse 4 then David sent messages to get her In the original Hebrew, he took her. She came to him, and he slept with her. All it takes is four verses. Four cold, calculated verses. And suddenly, David has become just another fallen hero in the Bible story. Yet another leader who abuses his God-given power to get his own way and, in this particular instance, to satisfy his sexual lust. Back in 2019, a Twitter debate was sparked by Rachel Denhollander. She's the first woman to accuse Larry Nasser, the USA Gymnastic Doctor of Sexual Assault, and the debate was sparked after she responded to a Gospel Coalition tweet. The tweet had said that David fornicated, and she responded saying David raped... It's important we get that right. And it was an important debate um, at the time, given that Bathsheba has often been depicted in, by artists and in movies of being something of a conniving, cunning, seductress, um, bathing naked to deliberately tease and entice great King David into sin. And whilst it is true that there are examples of women acting like this in the Bible, Proverbs 1-9, Potiphar's wife with Joseph, Do we see any inclination or hint of mention of that at all in the verses themselves? What do you say? Yes or no? No. Instead, let me draw out three things that we do see very clearly in the Bible text, and it's always the Bible text that we need to pay closest attention to with debates like this. First one I've already mentioned in verse 4. He took her. Slightly ambiguous in the NIV version. The Hebrew is unambiguous. David is the subject of the sentence. This is something he is doing to Bathsheba. Number two, when Nathan, the prophet of God, brings the word of God to David, he uses this metaphor. How does he describe Bathsheba as this innocent ewe lamb? How is David described? As this rich man who steals the lamb, kills the lamb, and devours the lamb. You cannot escape the predatory language being used to describe David here. Third thing to notice from the Bible text is at the end of chapter 11, and we get that God's assessment of it all, what are we told? But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12, verse nine, evil in his sight. Not the thing that David and Bathsheba had done the thing that David had done. This is on him, the king, the one with all power, the one who is meant to defend his people, not devour them. This is a heinous, evil abuse of power, and we need to see it in all its ugliness. And not say, you know, she should have just said no, as if she could when David sends all these messengers to get her. Well, she should have done a Daniel, resisted to the point of death, as if that would have made it any more consensual. Sex, death, what sort of choice is that? A heinous, evil, abuse of power. And tragically, it's not the end of the matter, because in verse 5, Bathsheba sends word to David, I'm pregnant, and then David goes on to this hasty cover-up operation. In verses 6-9, to David gets Uriah to come home from the battlefront because he hopes that he will sleep with Bathsheba, so Uriah will think that the baby is his. But that doesn't work because Uriah is so honourable that he can't imagine eating, drinking and making love to his wife and the rest of his men are fighting on the battlefront. And so David tries again, tries to manipulate the situation and to seek for another way. In verses 10 to 13, he gets Uriah drunk to loosen him up so hopefully now he'll he'll sleep with his wife. But that doesn't work either. And Uriah continues to be... There's the contrast between Uriah and his honour and David and his dishonour here. And then in verses 14 to 27, David decides, you know what, I'll just get Uriah killed. I mean, I can do it. I'm the king. I am the law. I'll send Joab... Tell Job, just put him to the front lines, where the fighting's the fiercest, and this poor, innocent, honourable man doesn't stand a chance, and he is killed, murdered. And perhaps what's most chilling of all is if you read forward into 1 Chronicles 11, you get the list of David's mighty men, the 30 closest companions who he fought in battle with. Guess who's named in that 30? Uriah. And now David just chews him up, spits him out, devours him, doesn't care. Just so he can get his way, get his cover up. This betrayal, this murder, this evil, heinous abuse of power. It is sickening. David serving himself, David putting himself first before others, David using and abusing all these people for his own means. And if we're left thinking to ourselves, where is God in all this? Because it seems he's pretty silent through chapter 11. But God gives his assessment as i would already pointed out to you in the final verse. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so look, if you are someone here who has ever been on the receiving end of an abuse of power, be it the terrible evil of sexual violence or physical violence, mental psychological abuse, the suffering right now from what's going on from Vladimir Putin's own abuse of power, please be in no doubt That God sees it, that God names it, it is evil, and God will not let it go unpunished. If not in this life, then certainly on judgment day. And I hope that is of some comfort to you now, and if you'd like to speak to me or a member of staff afterwards, please do grab us. Now, just when we think David has gotten away with it, the Lord sends Nathan, beginning of chapter 12. David's been doing a lot of sending in chapter 11. Now it's the Lord's turn to do some sending. And so he sends the prophet of God with the word of God to the king himself. And in verses 2 to 4, Nathan describes this rich man who has everything. Has everything, and yet still steals this lovely little ewe lamb that belongs to this poor man. It's all he's got, in, you know, lamb sleeps in his arms with description and steals the lamb and kills it and devours it for this visitor that comes to visit him and david's anger burns within him as surely as the lord lives the man who did this must die to which nathan replies in verse 7 you are the man And this is what the Lord says, I gave you everything, David. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Verse 11, out of your own household, I'm gonna bring calamity on you. There is always a consequence to sin. Then David said to Nathan, verse 12, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. I mean, there's so much in here, but why is it that David is still called in the New Testament a man after the Lord's heart, after the horrific sin that he commits here against Bathsheba and Hariah? I think it is because of his, his true, heartfelt, genuine repentance before the convicting word of God. Saul didn't do this. Disobeyed God's word unrepentant, disobeyed, unrepentant, worse than word. The prophet of God brings the word of God and David, I have sinned against the Lord. There's no more cover-up, I have sinned. There's no blame shifting, well she she should have said no. No excuses, you know, well Saul abused me all these years, no wonder I'm showing a bit of those tendencies now. There's none of that at all. I have sinned against the Lord. I have done it. It is my sin. I am to blame. I take full responsibility for it. I turn from it. It is sin. It is wrong. It is against the Lord. I'm creating me a pure heart. Psalm 51, if you want to get into it some more, we saw it in the confession here. This is a genuine, heartfelt repentance. A man after the Lord's heart. And even though David has fallen so suddenly, so quickly, so awfully, we see how quick the Lord is to forgive the moment anyone truly repents and turns back to him. Even though David will still live with the consequences of his sin for the rest of his life. So that's the story. How do we apply all this to us today? let me draw out three main applications for us. First, never underestimate your and my own propensity to fall as quickly and suddenly as David. You say, Mark, that's a little bit strong. I mean, that's David, that's not me. I'd never treat a woman like that. I would never murder something like that. The language here in this passage of David saw... She was beautiful, David took. it. His language straight from the Garden of Eden. Saw, good, took. The power of sin, the way our hearts are so quickly twisted away from God and to ourselves and our own means and what we want. David couldn't escape the power of sin. We can't escape the power of sin. As the great hymn puts it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So we must be on guard at all times. All it took was a look, a look of lust, not dealt with, not brought into the light, not repented of. It's something we've seen hints of in through the stories he's taking other wives. And this, this seed of sin that's been allowed to germinate and like a little acorn, this tiny little acorn can grow up in this huge, like massive oak tree. So the smallest of sins, left unchecked, not dealt with, not repented of, can lead to the worst of abuses. So if you struggle in this area of sexual lust, whether you're a man or a woman, if you struggle to control your eyes, your looks, your imagination, if you are addicted to pornography, please seek help right now. I mean, find someone you trust, speak to them today. Bring it into the light, repent of it before you cause incredible damage to others and to yourself. Just don't muck around with this sort of stuff. Never underestimate our capacity to sin. It has been said that the seeds of the worst sins imaginable live in every human heart. I wonder how much we believe that about ourselves. The seeds of the worst sins imaginable live in every human heart. Spouses here, beware the misuse of power in your marriage. The cold shoulder, the passive-aggressive comments, withholding affection, aggressive tone of voice, Harsh words. Now all these little patterns of control and manipulation to just get ourselves on top, you know, get our way over someone else. If only you were more helpful around the house, I wouldn't be so irritated with you. If you don't give me sex tonight, I'll be tempted to look elsewhere. It's just so ugly. These seeds, they're already there. Do you see them? Parents here, getting more and more parents at the 4pm, beware the misuse of power with your children. Refusing to apologize to them because of your pride, using your physical strength or superior verbal abilities to overpower them, force them into doing what you want them to do rather than what's best for them. Losing it with them in a way you never would with an adult because no one's watching. Using them to meet the emotional needs you are not getting from your spouse. I mean, are we even aware of when we are doing this? Do you have a Nathan in your life who can point this out to you? The seeds are there already in every human heart. Beware. Bring them into the light. Repent of them. Those in positions of leadership at university or work, beware the misuse of power with your team wanting to dismiss someone else's view because it's not your view and different to your own. Being jealous of others who are performing well, they're getting more attention than you. Thinking your opinion is superior to others purely because you're the leader. Lording over others, I'm in charge, do as I say. We need to repent. We say, I would never do what David did, I'd never abuse power like that, but we're already doing it. With these seed-like ways. Can I encourage us all, and I say this to myself as much as to you, can I encourage us all to make every effort to make sure these seeds do not grow this misuse of power into a tree of abuse of power. I have sinned against the Lord, please forgive me. Lord, you call me to let my gentleness be evident to all, including my children. Help me to serve them, not myself. Lord, I see the tendency in my heart to want to lord it over others. Forgive me, change me, help me to put others first, to be the servant leader you call all Christian leaders to be. Would you bring it into the light to the Lord? Do it now, in your heart, if that's you. I know it's me. And bring it into the light with your spouse, with your children, with your team. Any friendships where you know you're doing this? I'm sorry for my tone of voice. I'm sorry for treating you like that. I was wrong. I was serving myself. Please forgive me. I want to change. I want to put you first. Please help me with that. Never underestimate our capacity to sin, to fall as quickly and as suddenly as David. Repent, repent, repent. The second main application from these chapters. Beware idolizing any human leader. Growing up as a young child, I would idolise my mum and dad. I felt that they could do no wrong. Uh, any question I had for my dad, he seemed to be able to answer. My mum was amazing. You know, as a really young child, she would dress me, cook for me, drive me here, there, and, and everywhere. And, and it was wonderful, right, to be nurtured by mum and dad, to think they could do no wrong the way they looked after. I felt so safe. I felt so secure. I remember when I was age six, I was in the back of the car with my best friend. It was December, so it's Christmas time. I turned to my best mate. I say, Hey, what are, you, um, what are you hoping Santa brings for you this year? He starts giggling. Mark, Santa doesn't exist. I go, Yes, he does. He goes, No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. No, he does. Mum! I say at the front of the car driving, Mum, my parent who does no wrong, my parent who knows everything, my parent who tells me the truth, my mum who told me Santa's real. Mum, tell my best friend that Santa's real. My mum starts giggling. I couldn't believe it. I give her the benefit of the doubt. It's that nervous giggle when you get found out. No, Mark, Santa's not real. I felt like my whole world was collapsing from around me. My parents are liars. I can't trust them anymore. Now, my mum was actually at the service this morning, so let me say I love my mum. We're great. We've worked through it. Took me six years to work out the not perfect. None of us are. It took my children three years, half the time. But here's the point there is only one perfect leader. And it is not David. It's not my mum or dad. It's not your tutor, teacher, mentor, pastor, favorite sports personality, or political leader. There is only one person who is tempted in every way but without sin. There is only one leader who never abuses his power but always uses it for the good of others and for the sake of others. There is only one leader who never devours anyone else. Dies for us. So he can forgive us. Only one leader who has been triumphant over the grave such that if you repent and trust in him you are perfectly safe and secure in his hands for eternity. Jesus Christ never takes advantage of you. Jesus Christ always does right for you. Don't idolize any human leader. Worship him alone. I I hope no one here idolizes me or Pete as leaders of the church. I'm sure you don't, but just in case, you should be, thanks for laughing, that's good to know. (laughs) You should be under no illusion as to what Pete or I are capable of if the sin in our hearts, the seeds there, if they are left unchecked, unnoticed, unrepented of, the damage that it could cause. Pete is moving on soon. That will leave me as the sole senior pastor, more exposed, more pressure on me. Don't you dare idolize me. But please pray for me. Now don't get me wrong, church leaders are called to be above reproach, blameless husband of one wife, good reputation with outsiders, I take that very seriously indeed. A day does not go past when I don't pray that I'll be the servant-hearted leader that God calls all Christian leaders to be. But never think I'm sin-proof, never put me on a pedestal, never think I'm not capable of doing what David did here, if I am not daily repenting of the sin in my heart. So if that is a temptation for you, please speak to me afterwards. I would be only too happy to pop that balloon for you. You can just chat to Jo. She'll tell you how I lost it with her last night. Well, I was short with her last night. I won't exaggerate. (laughs) Beware idolizing any human leader. Worship Jesus alone. Third and final main application point, marvel at God's forgiveness to us in Christ. Now, some of you might ask, marvel? Marvel at God's forgiveness? I'm not sure I do marvel. I think I'm pretty shocked by it, actually. After everything David has done, to Bathsheba, to Uriah, and he says these six words, I have sinned against the Lord, and like, hey, presto, his sin's taken away. Where is the justice in that? And it's a good question, and it's an important question. It's the one that the Bible is really keen to address, and ultimately it answers it on the cross as Jesus Christ pays the full punishment for all David's sin and all the sin of all those who truly repent and trust in him. There is no sweeping under the carpet of David's sin here. God bears the full penalty himself in his Son as Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. Justice is done at huge cost to God himself. But do notice how freely and quickly God forgives David here, despite the cost. There's no, I'm going to let David stew for a while. He needs to learn a lesson. that'll do him some good there's no reliving it over and over there's no picking at the scab so the wounds can never heal God freely and willingly forgives David's sin straight away the moment he repents the Lord has taken away your sin I was reading some of Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing Grace uh, book this week. He quotes from Francois Moriac's masterpiece, and the knot of vipers. It's about this old man and woman, uh, man and wife, who have spent the last decades and decades of their marriage sleeping down the hall from each other. Um, and a rift had opened up 30 years earlier over whether the husband had shown enough compassion uh, um, and care when their five-year-old daughter fell ill. And now 30 years later, With it, not being dealt with, not being resolved, neither of them willing to take the first step. Every night, the husband is waiting for the wife to approach him, but she never appears. Every night, she is lying awake, waiting for him to approach her, but he never appears. And neither will break this cycle that began years before. It is tragic because neither of them will forgive. It is never the case with God. God always, freely, willingly forgives. The moment any one of us truly repents, Lord, I have sinned. I want a change of heart. Please give it to me. And it can be yours right away. So if you are feeling weighed down by the guilt and shame of some sin, heinous sin, you've committed years ago, if you are unable to forgive yourself despite you saying sorry to the Lord over and over again, if you are unable to move on from it, if you're unsure of your standing in God's eyes, will you hear this verse? The Lord has taken away your sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far has the Lord removed our transgressions from us. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Be set free the relationship with god is secure if you truly repent turn to him safe in his hands for eternity now don't mishear me there might and that doesn't mean that there might not be consequences of that sin that heinous sin that you might have to live with for the rest of your life if any of us here commit the sins that david did i mean these are criminal offenses under uk law that will be a long prison time but if you're truly repentant you will not be in jail alone, the Lord will be with you every step of the way through death, and you will see him face to face in eternity in this world made new. So do not underestimate your or my capacity to sit. Do not underestimate the capacity for any leader, no matter how godly they seem, to fall. But most of all, do not underestimate God's willingness to forgive all those who truly repent let me pray that for us now let's pray father God these are these are heavy verses heavy chapters but we need them and you give them to us for our spiritual good so please would you work in us a contrite heart a humble heart would we see what goes on in, in every human heart, the seeds of the sins, show them to us now. We don't want them, this misuse of power to become an abuse of power, protect us from that. Would we pray for one another? Would we be Nathans to one another? Would we be repentant to you? Would we bring things into the light with each other? And Father, would we marvel at your forgiveness to us in Christ that if we truly repent, our relationship is absolutely secure. Whatever the consequences of us in this life, you are with us for eternity. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.